Welcome to Barnyard Language, honest talk about running farms and raising families. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer, with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. While this is a podcast for farm families, sometimes our content isn't for the whole family. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Barnyard Language. We had a rare occurrence this morning. Katie actually beat me into the recording studio. So good morning, Katie. Well, I guess slightly afternoon for me, morning for you. What's going on in Iowa these days? Well, Arlene, as I was telling you before we started recording, um, on Monday mornings, I hope my husband doesn't hear this, after he and the kids leave, I take a short nap on the couch before I force myself to do anything else. Um, And this morning I had a dream that I was crocheting something and I got like 70% of the way through and realized that I was supposed to be knitting it and I had screwed it all up. And I was so angry in my dream that it actually woke me up. So I feel like that is just a sign of how things are going at this point. That's better or worse than an alarm clock that makes an annoying noise. I mean, I guess it's better than that, but it feels like it's been a week of the road to hell being paved with good intentions, etc. Do you want to expand on that? or uh... I have small children. Let's just put it that way. Yes. I tried to do something nice for them. They did not appreciate it. Right. It has turned into all hell breaking loose because <laughs> I thought I was doing something nice. Because sometimes something nice changes their routine and we don't like that in some households, right? I thought they were old enough to understand the concept of mommy and daddy not magically knowing how everything works. They are not. They still think that we are both omniscient and omnipotent, and maybe Jim is, but I'm sure not. Right, that you can fix everything. That definitely is uh, not so much fun. When And you should be able to fix whatever it is immediately, right? Yes, before it has even happened. I should have already known how to fix that. Yes, yeah, before, before you knew it was a problem. I uh, set up an online app. Minecrafting date with a friend who does understand it and who is patient enough to teach me and my children how Minecraft works in hopes that they will stop freaking out because (laughs) I thought I was doing something nice for them. Let's just put it that way. Yes. Yeah. It was not. Yeah. I feel like I have been Uh there in the Minecraft world. I will warn you, maybe it won't be an issue for you, but. I was unable to play Minecraft because of the speed and the visuals of it. Um, it would it makes me nauseous. So it was also a good way of getting out of playing Minecraft um, because I couldn't I couldn't do it, and I didn't really want to, but also I couldn't do it. Yeah, Jim has actually already said the same thing, and having seen the visuals, I have no interest in playing it. But my kids really want to, so hopefully I'll be able to hang long enough for them to do it. Yeah, I feel like it's one of those games that is like really fun and educational. And when they can figure it out themselves, it's actually a delight. But uh, just another warning, they will also destroy each other's stuff in Minecraft. And then you, they will get mad at each other and tattle and tell you about the things that they destroyed of each other's or that someone else destroyed of theirs. Maybe that's already happened. It's been a big feeling sort of a couple weeks anyway. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of little brother figuring out how much he can impact his sister with fairly little effort on his part. Right. And what what gives the biggest reaction? And he's real good at it. So. And she reacts in a spectacular way. Oh, my God. So much. 
and you know two trying not to to downplay things but then sorting out when they actually are that upset and when they're just so into the drama of it that you know if you fix the thing and all of the reaction immediately stops cool everybody was fake crying this is great you know like (laughs) yeah that's right i don't mind having to to mediate when there's an actual problem but when they're just being pissy with each other i got stuff to do yeah and it's hard to tell when that scream is like someone has severed a limb versus someone moved my thing three inches and i really didn't want them to do that or you know he touched me or he looked at me or he looked at my doll or yes exactly whatever do you have lambs yet you've been saying the last few weeks that you're getting ready She's looking out the window. I, of course, can't even see the sheep barn from here, so I don't know why I'm looking out the window. There weren't any when Jim left for work this morning. It is Monday morning. It is 11.08 my time. It is supposed to be almost 70 degrees today, Fahrenheit. Of course, it is supposed to be like 60 degrees tomorrow, Fahrenheit. And then on Wednesday, it's supposed to be like 20 degrees and raining. Right. So probably Wednesday is going to be the... Uh... Yeah, for you sheep people, it's going to be Tuesday morning at 3 a.m. We're going to have <laughs> lambs everywhere. Because legit, a pressure drop like that, just, I don't know what it is about it. but And especially if it's raining, and especially if it's dark, and double points if it's a full moon, which it was on Saturday. So I feel like that's still close enough to, to impact it. This is this is going to be the week. Then. And they are supposed to start lambing on Wednesday anyway by the calendar. We'll see. How are things at your place, Arlene? Things are going pretty well. My oldest was home for reading week this past week, basically spring break for university students. So it was nice to have her around. So we were fitting in some extra things. And um, she and my husband and I went on a short getaway. So we went away for two nights. She had a lot of schoolwork to do, so it really wasn't a a big um, holiday by any means. But we crossed the border into the States, and our goal was to eat at restaurants that we couldn't eat at in Canada, and did a little bit of shopping and quite a bit of relaxing at our Airbnb while she did schoolwork, and we read our books and lounged. So yeah, it was a nice nice retreat for, for us, and the boys stayed here at home and went to school. So it wasn't too much extra work, I don't think, for my mother-in-law who looked after them and the people who were on on schedule at the farm didn't, uh, I don't think, as far as I know, had to, had too much extra work either. So that was good. Yeah, so our, our options this year or this time were we went to Target because it went bankrupt in Canada, so we don't have it here. Went to Olive Garden and Cracker Barrel and Red Robin because none of those places are on our side of the border. And yeah, did some other shopping. So That was fun. People watching, you know, leaving the farm. We saw some other farms. So, of course, you know, we had to check them out from the road. So you're saying in 14 years that I should be able to take a relaxing vacation with a child? Yeah. I mean, who won't be a child by then because they'll be like adults, but. Yes. Okay, cool. We're we're like a quarter of the way there. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yay. It can happen. And otherwise, what's going on around here? I feel like just the usual. We're still kind of in meeting season. We've got last week we had our vet put on a day where we learned about dry cow protocol and what else was the afternoon speaker about? Oh, repro. That one's a kind of a fun one because it's more of a roundtable discussion. So they've got some 
visiting vets who will come in and talk to the group, but also it's a bunch of farmers. So everybody kind of talks about what works at their place, what they've tried and hasn't worked. And it's a really nice group in terms of people actually being open and not judgmental, which can sometimes be a little bit hard to find, but being a smaller group. And I think people that have common vocabulary and life experience, that was actually a pretty good one. And they put on a lunch too. So that's also a bonus. Yeah. I think that's the main stuff that's been going on lately. So today we're excited to be talking to David Hafner, who is our first Florida guest. A little while ago, I posted a map and now we're feeling extra motivated to fill in all of our states. So this is exciting to have one of these southern states getting filled in on our guest map. So David, we start each of our interviews with the same question, and this is a way to introduce yourself to our listeners. So we always ask, what are you growing? So that can be crops and livestock for our farmers, but also includes kids and careers and businesses and all, all kinds of other stuff. So David, what are you growing? Uh, it's like I told one of my friends many years ago, I'm growing the future. I am a 4-H agent as my full-time job. I'm an opportunity creator for our youth so they can work their way into the future and have a, a successful life. Along with my career in 4-H, I also have a small farm, which we're still trying to figure ourselves out. Right now we raise poultry, sheep, pigs. We board some horses. And then we have four children of our own, which keep us pretty busy, me and my wife. We raise a little bit of everything. Yeah, that's a lot of different things. So I'm only going to ask because it differs depending on where you are. So what is a small farm for you? Yeah, that's, that, is, that is a good point that the definition is different depending where you are. So my farm is only six acres. Yeah, you're right. Some places, 100 acres is still considered a small farm, but yeah, we're sitting on six. And David, how similar is a 4-H agent to a CIA agent? Because I'll admit that that's where my brain went and I'm just like, yeah. So our job is much harder than a CIA agent. We have nobody to throw the blame on when things go sideways. (laughs) We take the full blame. (laughs) No, being a 4-H agent is, is great. It is there's a lot involved in it. You know, you have to have your head on a, on a swivel, looking for opportunities, looking for what your kids are interested in. So you can create those opportunities. And it's a lot of hours. I tell people it's, it, I have the best job, but if you're not a person that likes to work extra hours, you know, if you want a, a nine to five or a 40 hour job, you don't want to be a 4-H agent. It's you know, much like being a farmer. You're pretty much always working. I just got back yesterday from a three-day conference with where all of the Florida 4-H agents got together and I was thinking about when was the last time I had a day off, actual just just a just a weekend day off, you know, not, not not taking a day off. In the month of January, I had a total of four days off, and I love it. I, I don't I don't regret it. I a lot of these things I go to, I get to take my own kids because all four of my sons are in 4-H, so it really is it's a family thing. Yeah, that's just a really like, cool way of being able to incorporate them into your job too. Yes. I just like the idea that you'd be like sitting on a park bench, you know, covertly passing flyers back and forth or like fair signups <laughs> or something. Yeah, there, there, there's some of that going on from county to county between agent to agent, like sharing secrets and that kind of stuff for sure. <laughs> yeah, hot hot tips. So you mentioned yeah. that your kids are 4-H age already. So how old are your four children? So they are 12, 10, 7, and 6. Okay, so pretty close together too. Yes. So, David, where did you grow up and what's your, were you a 4-H'er as a kid? Yeah, I grew up in South Florida. My family had a a ranch growing up. That was not what I consider small. We had about 800 acres. 
where we raised the horses, did all the, the horse activities, mostly Western pleasure. We did trail riding, boarding. When I was younger, we needed something for me to do. So my family developed a summer camp. And as I became older, I became a camp counselor there. And I did join 4-H. I didn't join 4-H till I was in high school. So I missed that on, on a lot of years. But we had we moved. And when we moved, the the club met on the same street I lived on. The club leaders said, you're joining my club. And it was an equine club. So I was comfortable there. And yeah, and it just kind of became part of me. Like I grew up on the ranch, so there wasn't a lot of talking to other people. There was a lot of talking to horses. We had about 80 horses. And so I spent a lot of time with them. And so being in 4-H really gave me the opportunity to come out of just talking to horses and actually start talking to people, gaining confidence, learning how to communicate, and then just really became a part of me. After I graduated high school, I stayed on for a couple more years as a junior counselor. And then when my oldest son was old enough, we were right back in 4-H again. And so, yeah, it's just, just full circle. And now, yeah, I went from having a kid in 4-H to I became a club leader to I became a member of the 4-H advisory council for my county. And then now I'm the agent. So it kind of came full circle. I like this idea of like a 4-H pipeline. You get in and you <laughs> yeah. can't get out. 4-H yes. is probably going to come for me, like comparing them to the mafia. Great. So like you said, you have a smaller farm that you're still trying to figure out. And I know from some information that you sent us before, that's in part because you were farming somewhere else and then had to move. So what was that experience of having to to reprioritize and find another piece of land and, and do that move like for you and what lessons came out of that experience? Yeah, that was that was that was tough. So that was in 2020. So that was a bad enough year as it was. And it started off bad for me because all that happened before uh, the whole COVID impacts. So in at the end of 2019, I had a total of about 16 acres that I was using and 10 of those acres were leased right next to me. And my landlord said, it's coming to the end of the year. It's time to re-sign the lease, but don't worry. I'm a little bit behind. I can't get to you to sign the lease, but you know, don't worry. We're going to re-sign. You, know, you're, you have nothing to worry about. And that was in December. Well, it got to be beginning of January. I was like, okay, you know, it's time to get together. Can we get this lease signed? He's like, oh, I just sold the property. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so what does that mean? He's like, well, the new landlords are going to build and they want your animals off. You have two weeks. And wow. at that time I was raising cattle. I had probably around 15, 16 head. I had built it up from, from three heifers in a bull and just was, you know, building my herd, trying to really do something. So I had two weeks notice and in Florida, the land value is extreme to where it's, it's kind of hard. If you don't already have the land, you're not going to get the land either. It's already being leased to somebody or it's being developed. I tried my best with a two week window to find somebody to help me out. It just didn't happen. I had to sell off everything I had. And I really had a hard time with that because I've done other things. You know, I grew up with horses. It was until my thirties, I started breaking into all these other types of livestock. And I really thought I was going somewhere with cattle and I really enjoyed it. And I really struggled with my own identity. Like, okay, who am I? I already struggled because I only had 16 acres and I felt like I wasn't enough. And now I don't even have cows. So what am I? Am I a farmer? I have a lot of knowledge. I've been through leadership programs and with, with farm programs, but you know, I just, it was, it was really tough for me. So I, I, I was like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just done. I'm just done farming. I don't, don't want to do it anymore. But then my kids were still younger at that time. And I was looking at them as like, 
you know, they really enjoyed it. And I really wanted that for them because just be, growing up, you know, for me growing up in, in agriculture was, was an awesome childhood and I want that for them. So I decided, no, I'm not going to give up. We're just going to pivot. We're going to try something new. So I really started going more into poultry and I was like, okay, we're going to make this work. But then as that land next to me sold and as other pieces of property around me sold, the whole neighborhood, just the character of the community just changed. And it was no longer, I mean, I, I was in a pretty rural area. I was actually going, attending college classes, trying to better myself. And I would have to sometimes submit my papers in the pasture just to get a cell phone signal. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, so it was a pretty rural area and it was not feeling rural anymore. It was really developing up. And a lot of the people in my neighborhood that we all relied on each other to look out for each other because we were so far out there, they were all leaving. So we decided, you know what, let's go ahead, let's sell and we'll move somewhere else too. And so that's what we did because we were down to five acres at that point and it wasn't a whole lot to work with. And we just wanted to try something new. So that's when we moved to our current home. We've been there for two, two years now and still just trying to figure out what fits, but not giving up either is where we're at. I think we're going to make a big push towards poultry. I think that's what it's going to be. That's, that's really what I'm looking at. And when I was in my college classes, I was taking some ag classes. And one of the things that we had to do was make a business plan and really like, how much, how much money are you making on that chicken at the end of the day when you factor in the, the cost per pound of food and how much that chicken's eating and all that stuff. I, I, I took the opportunity to actually use what I figured I probably would do one day. So I, in college, I made my, my, my business plan. So it's time to put that thing to work. <laughs> so in terms of numbers of animals at this point, what are you working with and kind of what do you, you said you want to expand or, or focus on the poultry? What, what is your vision yeah. for what that looks like going forward? So as far as livestock at the moment, we're, we're small. I have one sheep and I have, I have two pigs. We have a dairy cow. It's a 4-H project that I don't know why we have her, but she's there. <laughs> but so here, here's something that happened just recently. Thanksgiving morning, we woke up and we had Nubian goats. We had just put the male with the females to breed them. We were going to start milking the goats. We were going to start making products. We woke up to them all having been killed. We mm -hmm. had a predator attack overnight. So it's just one of those things. It feels like every time we try to move in a direction, something keeps happening. So it's hard to keep moving forward, but we we're going to keep moving forward. So we lost all of our goats that day. And then we had another predator attack. New Year's Day morning, we lost another one of our sheep. So we were raising sheep. We had up to 10. We had just started trying that out. We sold off everything except for our main two. And we're going to buy a new male and then rebreed. But now we have one sheep. So I don't know if we're going to continue with, with this having happened now twice in such a short time. I don't know if we're going to keep, I don't want to keep getting animals. are going to keep getting slaughtered like that. I don't know much Go about ahead. Florida predators, but what do you suspect it was? It must be a decent sized predator if it's taking out yeah. goats and sheep. So I did contact the FWC, Florida Wildlife Conservation Committee, and they're telling me it's coyotes. And I'm not trying to tell them they're wrong. They're the specialists, but I really don't believe that the first kills were, were coyotes. Just, just from what I saw in my experience, they looked more like a Florida panther. But to the FWC's credit, usually a panther will only kill one. They won't kill multiple. 
So that's why I accepted their, their, their reasoning and didn't push forward. The reason I don't feel like it was a coyote is the difference between a cat and a dog is a dog usually attacks and kills and eats from the end of the animal where the cat goes more towards the middle. The second kill was definitely a coyote. The first one, it was more eaten towards the middle. So that's why that, that's my thought, but I'm not a specialist, so I have to, I'm going to go with what they said. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm really sorry that that happened. That's rough. Yeah. David, I feel really but... bad now because I was laughing to myself because I was waiting for you to say, and we went to put the buck in and there were already kids on the ground because <laughs> I know folks that's happened to. I can tell you that University of Washington has some real interesting research out about coyote predation. We have a lot of coyotes on our farm. We raise sheep. We have had so much more trouble with dogs, with domestic animals, killing animals on our mm -hmm. farm than we've ever sure. had with coyotes. But I mean, they are certainly capable and it's certainly possible. But as far as changing the size of your farm, do you think that starting with a smaller amount, has that been easier or harder than I'm trying to figure out how to ask this. You had a larger amount. You went to a smaller amount. And then am I correct that you restarted yes. with a smaller amount somewhere else, right? Yep. Was it, how did the experience of starting knowing that you were going to start with a small amount compare to starting with a bigger amount and then ending up with a smaller amount, if that makes sense? Yeah. The hard part about for me was with going smaller at first is that you don't have, you can't sell off anything to recoup right now. So you're having to constantly build without getting anything back. And that combined with the increasing price of everything, it just makes it hard to stay in it because you're just constantly putting out, putting out and nothing coming back. Yeah. I think I figured out over the last three or so years, the price of, of all the, all the different feeds that I use have gone up probably 30%. And a lot of, a lot of things like the hay, you can't, there's not much to buy here in Florida. We're getting hay from out of state. So any of that quality hay that you're getting in the Northern part of the country, the Western part of the country, that's getting trucked in. So we're paying not just the, the, the hay cost, but also that fuel cost. And so it's just, it's really difficult with that, with that, in, that increase in, in inputs to just, just to start, just, just to build it up. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So we've already been talking about predation. How how does that figure into your poultry plan? I'm sure you've got lots of fences and yes, <laughs> barricades yeah. to try and protect those birds. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No. So the so surprisingly, the only way I've ever lost a bird is if they escape and, and a hawk gets them. Nothing has actually bothered the coop. That is pretty well built. I'm I'm pretty secure in that. And that is something that, like I said before, that's, that's the direction I'm going. In the next month, you'll definitely see me sharing a post where I have just brought in probably 200 chickens. That's that's the number I'm looking at right now. I want to bring in some layers. I, and I also want to give a shot at some some meat birds and broilers and see how that goes. I have a lot of people in the community that want to buy from me if I get that going. I've never processed a chicken before. I've processed turkeys. So I, I'm sure it's, it's similar, just on a smaller scale. So I'm interested in giving it a shot, you know, raise them for myself first. And then if it goes well, then we'll probably offer them to the community as well. So 4-H obviously is one of those programs that can look a lot different depending on where you are. I assume that 
4-H in Iowa is probably pretty different than it is in South Florida, and I'd imagine it's pretty different even in Canada, Erlene, although we mm-hmm. know that Canada is actually one place all the way across and is... Yes, yeah, 4 is definitely the same from coast to coast. <laughs> sea to shining, whatever's on the other side. More sea, and then the, uh, the upways, another sea, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> David, we joke a lot about how very, very little we've, I at least, learned about Canada in any part of my education, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So what does 4-H look like in your neck of the woods? So you're right, 4-H is different from place to place, and it's different from county to county. The way I see it is based on two things. You're going to have it based on what are the interests or the sparks of the kids in the program, and it's going to be based on what are the interests of the agent. And I've seen it where the only programs that a county has are the ones that the agent is interested in, but I've also seen it where you have these agents that are above and beyond, and they they bring in every opportunity um, that the kids are looking for. Uh, when it comes to my county, um, yeah, I've only been the agent for a year, so I'm still building. Um, we've had some great agents, but we've also had a lot of turnover in agents. My son, who is 12, like I said, he's had four agents, including me, in his 4-H career. So there's been a lot of turnover. But when I came in, we had a lot of livestock programs, which are great. I love livestock. But it's important to remember that 4-H offers so much more than just livestock. So I've really worked hard to bring in new programs that you don't have to own an animal to participate in. I just started a livestock judging team, which is actually what I did when I was in 4-H. I did equine judging. We're focusing more on community service and we're we're focusing on civics and leadership. Uh, actually, I'm leaving on Monday for a three-day trip to our state capital where I'll be teaching kids about engaging with their representatives and how to, you know, how to not only how to develop your story, how to talk with them in person and how to talk to them for 15 seconds in the elevator, because that elevator speech is so important. And it's not just my county. So I do have kids coming from my county, but I'm also really excited that I'm part of a statewide initiative. We have our Florida 4-H executive board, which is all made up of youth from across the state. And then within that executive board, we have uh, different committees. And I was selected as the adult chair of our ambassador committee. So I'm actually teaching uh, a group of 17 kids from across our state, how these skills and how to, how to do this kind of stuff. And, and I, I teach them with a focus of not something that, you know, I don't teach them, you need to be 4-H ambassadors. I teach them, all right, let's find what your interest is and how can you share that? You know, so that's something that I was a member of the American Farm Bureau. They have the Partners in Advocacy Leadership Program. And that's kind of what they did with us is they really wanted us to hopefully be advocates for, for Farm Bureau and for agriculture. But really, they just wanted to teach us the skills so we could then be advocates. So I tried to take that and, and share that with our Florida 4-H kids. I feel like both as an employee and as you know an entrepreneur and business owner myself and as a parent, I don't feel like we've ever heard anyone say, you know, are kids too well prepared for public speaking? They do too well out in public. You know, they're they're too able to present an elevator pitch or write a business plan or judge dogs or whatever it is, you know, and I don't feel like we ever hear that kids are over prepared to go out in the world. So I think, you know, mm-hmm. anything that gets them out with other humans is a good you know, yeah. not that talking to horses is not a great experience, too. 
but right. (laughs) Yeah. That advocacy piece is really important too. Right. I mean, like you said, Katie, as a parent, you know, we end up being advocates for our kids and, you know, kids do need to, as they get older, need to be able to, to advocate for themselves, whether it's in school or yeah, once they're applying for jobs, all that kind of stuff, but the, the types of, programs that you end up in later on might not be related to agriculture or 4-H, but the skills that you learn there are going to be be useful in all parts of your life. So yeah, if there are places where 4-H isn't as well established or the programs aren't there that really fit with what your kid's spark is, I like that word, are, they, are there ways that parents can get involved and either advocate or help to expand the program into areas that they feel would suit their community or their their children? Yeah, definitely. I I have a great group of volunteers in my county. Uh, every county, everywhere that has 4-H has volunteers, and it's the volunteers that actually are the soul and and the and the force behind the program. As much as I would love to be at every event, there's no way I could do everything. So I really rely on my volunteers to to be that force. And so, anytime that there's somebody who has something they knew knew they want to try. I'm always open to it, but I also ask, would you do it with me? You know, I'll help spearhead it. I'll be there with you, uh, but I'm going to need you to then pick it up and continue it because there's, there's just no way I could do everything. So if if you want to, if, you're, if your program is not where you want it to be, or you have new things you want to try, I, I, I very much encourage you to contact your 4-H agent and just talk to them and say, I'm interested in this. And you have me. I will be that volunteer. I will help you get it started. Because a lot of times that, that's, that's the problem is that we are at capacity with what we have. We really can't take on anything new. And if we do, it's not going to be a great program. And so we'd rather not take on something new and not, you know, and make sure we, we just want to make sure we're given the best opportunities available. And if we're at capacity, we just can't take that new thing on. So new volunteers will bring that new, that new energy that we need to then bring in those new things. So, A, I think it's great, too, to encourage kids to know that resources aren't limitless and that if they want, you know, something different in 4-H, then they need to advocate for it and, you know, use their own discernment and decision-making about how resources are used and advocate for themselves because, you know, Mm -hmm. it doesn't do any good to have mommy jumping in to fix everything for you. My kids are five and seven, and we're already trying to push into them doing it themselves because I don't want to say I have better things to do with the rest of my life, but I don't really like the idea of spending the rest of my life, you know, calling their college professors or calling their bosses or whatever to, to fix things for them. You know, sure. They're people, they'll yeah. figure it out. I'm really excited that the group of kids that I have, I've got a handful that really are standing out and they're taking those initiatives. They're they're pushing forward. They push me, which is awesome. And yeah, you know, when I when I started, they they told me we want people when we go to statewide forage events. We, we right now we get where's Martin County? I don't know where that is. And they want they want to walk in the room and people say, oh, there's Martin County. And I said, okay, let's do it. This is going to be on you to do that. You have to be that. But I'll show you how. And in my first year, I had one of my kids, one of my forage kids. She is now a state officer. She's the first state officer from my county in 40 years. 
I have three kids that are serving on the Florida 4-H executive board. One of my kids took first place in statewide public speaking. Another one took third place and she went to the, the national competition in Colorado. So these kids came to me with a goal. I showed them how, and that's all they needed. They just needed someone to open that door and they ran through it. So it's just, it, it's just, like I said before, I'm just creating opportunities and they're, and they're thriving. It's been really, it's, I couldn't think of anything better to do with my time. So when it comes to advocating, I assume that with 4-H out there, you're part of a, a state university system as well, right? Yes. How can we be more efficient and effective in political advocacy? Because I mean, knowing, yeah. you know, state budgets, federal budgets, politics, there's a lot of voices and it can be really hard to feel like you're being heard over the sure the, uh, yeah cacophony shall we say yeah that, so that's one thing when at, with me being i am i'm an employee of the university of florida so i am able to give information i can't necessarily lobby so but i can educate my kids and say if you're interested in talking about this here's the information it's a fine line for sure. But up until I took this job, I was definitely an advocate and definitely, I don't know if lobbying is the right word, but I don't know what else to call it. I was in DC. I was in my state capital. I was in, in district meeting with my elected officials and all of my elected officials from the county and on up. And honestly, my, for me, the most um, important thing you can do is just have conversations uh, with your elected officials. Just build that relationship. I, I see a lot of people who only contact their representative when they need something, but they don't have a, they don't have that relationship. Uh, that representative doesn't really know who they are, what they stand for. Is that person who's calling me today on this issue going to flip flop on me later on and leave me hanging that I don't actually have somebody, you know, one of my constituents is not actually supporting this. So just, just building that relationship. And it, it took me a while to do that, you know, showing up to their events calling them, writing them letters, just build that relationship and make sure you're being authentic. Be, be, you'll figure out who you are before you start that relationship so that you can really put yourself to them is, is really important. And then when you have issues, don't hesitate to then, you know, talk to them and, and share, don't share. I don't like this share. I don't like this because can we do this instead? Give them an alternative because a lot of times that's what it is. They, they can't just, they can just vote no, but that's not going to help you if they just vote no. They can vote no and make an amendment, and now we're heading towards a better solution. And if you're with an organization, like I, I've been a Farm Bureau member for a long time, contact your Farm Bureau or your, whatever the organization is and talk to them about it and have them help you develop what the plan could be because then that organization will follow up with them when you can't be there. And you can really, really strengthen your numbers by getting your whole organization behind it. And there's a lot of strength in doing that, a lot of, lot of power in that. So that's worked really well for me throughout the years. You know, I've done, my elected officials don't always go the way I, I want them to go, and they're not going to. I let them know when I don't agree with them. But I also let them know we're going to continue having conversations, though. I'm not cutting you off because you didn't vote my way. I think it is important, you know, especially as we're coming into an election year this year, that we hear so much about, you know, they work for us. There are, you know, there we elect them. There are employees, you know, and that's a, a very valid point. But when 
no one else is running and we're not supporting them, you know, as farmers and as parents, I wouldn't expect to be able to tell my cows or my children that you're going to do X, Y, and Z and then not open the gate in front of them or not help them with what they need or give them any reason that they should do X, Y, and Z. It's not fair to just send angry emails, but then never tell them what you do want to happen or why, you know, actually why they should do X, Y, and Z instead of just saying, vote no for that, and then not present a a persuasive argument, you know, one way or the other for it. Yeah. And I also would make sure I went to both sides of the aisle. I knew a lot of people who would only go to this representative because they, they voted the same way they vote. Well, that other person's going to vote on it too. You should talk to everybody you can get a hold of. You know, if, if you can get their ear for 30 seconds, take their ear for 30 seconds. Doesn't matter what letter is sitting next to their name. That's true. And those people can sometimes be your advocate or, you know, the, whoever's the maybe the elected official but then they're the person debating against them if you've got their ear too then maybe you've you've got more sway because then you've you've kind of um put put your arguments in their ear right the one thing i think it's good to remember for farm bureau for you guys and i mean in my province we have the federation of agriculture or different agricultural organizations is to actually tap into those groups because they do this all the time you know they they know the people to talk to. They have the experts to help you form your arguments. You know, like you might understand at a local level why there's something you want to see changed, but you don't necessarily understand the legislation or what you're working with in terms of, of who to talk to or what departments or, you know, like what the what the right process is. But there are people out there who this is their job and they understand, you know, how to how to how to deal with governments that you know those local issues are sometimes do you feel like you have to go in there swinging and you can figure it out yourself but but there are people and experts out there that you can you can ask for advice and they can they can help you with those with those uh discussions as well yeah no they can definitely make it very easy and another another uh, thing i like to share is you know, it, it's very popular and very exciting to meet with your elected official, but don't ever turn down an opportunity to meet with your official's staff. That legislative aid it just has just as much power as your elected official. That's the person who's sitting there late at night discussing the bills and will tell that elected official, I think you should vote this way. Your constituent was in today and they said this, and I've had that happen. It For me, my, my congressman, and I do not see eye to eye at all. Uh, but I went to Washington, D.C. with American Farm Bureau, and they intentionally had us go during a week that Congress was on break, knowing that only staff would be there. And so we still had those appointments. I met with the legislative aide for my congressman and my senator, and I talked with them and I asked them you know, about their job. I asked them what's the best way to communicate with you and things like that and just got to know that person. And uh, about not quite a year later, there was an issue facing Florida strawberry farmers. And they needed this product to grow their strawberries. And if they didn't use it, there was going to be a fungal problem on the strawberries. And it was really going to have an impact on Florida strawberries. So I contacted my congressman. I said, listen, I know you're going to vote on this. I really hope that you'll vote this way. And I, I, re, I sent an email and that was it. And I didn't expect anything out of it, but I figured I did my part. You know, he, he's not going to listen to me because we don't get along. 
Well, then I get a call from his aide, who I do have a good relationship with. She's like, hey, I need to know more about this. So because it came from Farm Bureau, I pulled up the link they sent me. There was a farmer who was a strawberry farmer who shared his story and how this is going to affect him. And I saw a connection. That farmer was also a retired army veteran, which my congressman also is a retired army veteran. So I made that connection in my response. Here's what this farmer said. He's also a retired army veteran. I got an email two weeks later saying that my congressman voted my way um, because I took the time to reach out. And because I had made that relationship with the legislative aid, I even had that opportunity. I know, too, in the state of Iowa, at least, there's a lot of political figures that I didn't even know existed. And they can have a lot more power than you might anticipate or, you know, have the ears of a lot more folks. And for us, it's our our state auditor is from my corner of the state. I had no idea there was a state auditor. I certainly couldn't have told you what he does. Our state auditor happens to be a young guy who is very liberal, but also a bow hunter. You know, a dad comes from a farm family and is very social media savvy. And he knows, as far as I can tell, more about what is happening in this state than anyone else does. Because if you're the guy who follows the money, you're going to know what's happening. But he's also, because he's not the governor, he's much easier to get a hold of, you know, and more and more people are taking sort of that back alley approach to to contacting people because obviously he knows everybody. And so I think there can be a lot of power in getting to know those folks. And I mean, like you speak about, you know, talking to the aides, the aides are the ones that are answering the letters, you know, they're answering the emails, they're picking up the phone. They're the ones who they're doing the research, right? Yeah, they're they're, they're going to summarize it for the person who's doing the voting because they can't possibly research every single issue. So, yeah, if you can, yeah, get your get your talking points in there, then, yeah, that helps, too. I'm going to transition our conversation more into the parenting side because we're both an ag and a parenting podcast. So we like to make sure that we cover both parts. David, we're often talking to women about that transition time from not being a parent to becoming a parent and all the life changes that happen. And with women, that's often physical, but that doesn't mean that you as a dad don't also have a huge transition to becoming a parent. Do you have any reflections on that time of when you, you know, you had your first and what that looked like for your, you know, for your marriage, your relationship and you as an individual? Reflecting back on it, it was tough because, you know, we were trying to farm and it was pretty much me. My wife, she's very supportive, but she's not from a farming background. So it was, it was all on me and I'm trying to be supportive to her and to our child, but also trying to get the farm work done. And not only that, but I also had a full-time job. So trying to do all those things and trying to do what I thought was best for our family, but wasn't always necessarily in the house, hands-on with her when she needed that break. I didn't fully understand that. And so that, that was, it was pretty difficult for me. I always felt like, like I maybe wasn't, yeah, I was failing somewhere, but I couldn't figure out how I was disappointing her and not sure, you know, what I should do. So that was definitely a trying thing. Just always trying to trying to find that balance. It was that was difficult for me for sure. And so for our first two sons, when they were born, my wife did work. She had a job. She was a nurse, worked very hard and and 
But then after our second son was born, we realized that about what she was making was what we were paying in childcare. So then she transitioned to that stay-at-home mom. And then we had two more. <laughs> so then her job doubled. And I, I've never, I've never doubted that she works just as hard as anybody else and that she has the most important job. And I've never felt like, like she, she sometimes feels like she should be contributing more and she should go get a job. And she often will get on that track where she starts looking at jobs. And, and I've always been supportive of her. It's like, if you feel like you need a job, if that's something that will fulfill you, then yes, but don't ever think that I don't appreciate you because I know what you're doing. There's nothing more important than making sure our children have a great start in life. And so that's kind of where we're at. She are, all of our kids are now in school, uh, but she is still, she, she's very much involved still. She volunteers at the school. She's just, she's a room mom, wherever she can. Like she basically is an employee of the school at this point, but her kids are thriving because of it. So it's, yeah. Yeah, there's so many programs. I mean, like 4-H depends on volunteers. Schools, for a large part, depend on volunteers, and that that falls on on parents to to provide those services that kind of go beyond the scope of just the what's happening in the classroom. Yeah. You also mentioned to me that you and your wife were foster parents. Was that before you had kids, or when you had kids? When did that fit into the timeline of your of your life? Yeah, it was before we had kids. So we got married early. We were married at 21 years old. And I think we were around 24 years old. And we, we had no, no kids were coming. We had always said we weren't trying, but we weren't preventing. But nothing was happening. So we were kind of like, okay, maybe we're not going to have kids. It had been several years. And the opportunity came that we, we took a class to learn about being coming foster parents. And then we jumped in and took the full training. It's a 10-week uh, training that you go. And it's pretty in-depth. Um, they really do a lot to make sure you're actually a good fit to be a foster parent. They don't just let anybody do it. So we became foster parents in our in our mid-20s, and it was an awesome experience. We definitely helped us prepare to be parents because we had a lot of, we had, I think, over 30 kids came through our home. And from all different scenarios, you know, we, we had kids that we had, you know, the, the drug baby who didn't want to be touched because, you know, he had that sensory issue. And we had kids who were, the parents had been busted for selling narcotics and we had the kids who had to be witness to that we had we had a kid who or two kids actually it's funny my, my name's david my wife's name's alicia and their names were david and alicia those were the out of all the kids we had those were the only ones we felt happy about them going back the mom uh, got in trouble for stealing but she was stealing diapers and food and she just didn't know where the resources were so that was actually a happy experience for her to get her kids back. And her kids were so well taken care of. It's just that she didn't know how to find those resources. So we sent them back with a letter. Here are the resources, please. Or, or call us if you need resources. Don't don't feel like you have to steal. There are people that will help you. But yeah, we had, we had kids from infant uh, all the way up to teenagers. We had kids that they would bring us just for temporary housing because they needed to be transferred to a state state facility, like a group home. And they didn't expect the kids to stay with us because they were runaways. And they would run away from everywhere they were, but they didn't run away from us because we, I don't know what it was, maybe just the way we treated them a little bit. You know, we, every kid that came in our home, we treated them like they were ours. We made sure that they understood that they're, they were not staying with us forever, that this was a temporary until they got back to their family. But, you know, at that time they were ours and, yeah, it, it was it was an awesome experience with the kids, with the state. That was frustrating having to work with the state and and the rules that were in place. It felt like 
that the, the parents had all the rights and the kids didn't have any, which I know is a typical arrangement. Uh, but in those situations, I feel like the kids should have had some more rights while they were uh, in the process of being reuni reunified with their parents. So the parents still had very much control over their kids and they would use that to make life difficult for the foster parents. We even had one case where we had DCF called on us, which is the Department of Children and Families in Florida, basically had to be investigated. These claims that were made against us that we were abusing these children and they were Hispanic. They were from Honduras and they alleged that we only fed them beans and rice because that's where they're from and that's what they eat. And <laughs> the funny thing is that, the, that the, the report against us was made right after Christmas. And so the, the caseworker came into our home and the tree was full of presents under it. The kids had just unwrapped because it was like two days after Christmas. It's like the, you know, these kids are our kids you know, until they go back. They, you know, so it, it actually ended up being a great experience because it, we got to experience what that's like. And then it just validated that we were doing the right things, but mm. it was, yeah. So what went into the decision to end being foster parents? Well, that's when we had a child coming along. There are very strict rules on how much, how many square feet you need to have in your home for having children. And at that time we had a smaller home. So with a child coming, we no longer had the room to have foster kids. It was a hard decision because we really did enjoy it. And it could be something we do one day again when our kids are grown, but that's the reason we end up surprisingly having our own child and that was it for fostering. <laughs> but what, something that's cool that's come with it since is we had two young girls that were in kindergarten and second grade. And unfortunately, we, we really thought that was going to be, they were going to be placed with us forever. We really thought we were going to adopt them and it didn't work out. They ended up going back with their family, which is good. When the older sister became an adult, she actually found us. So now we get to communicate with her a little bit and she's a mother now. And she's actually, it looks like she's doing really well, which is great because usually a kid that's in the foster system, their kids end up in the foster system. So I think she's actually going to break that trend, which is awesome. It seems I try really hard not to be like, you know, healthcare workers are all heroes and angels among us because it can be so dismissive of the work and the struggle that goes into it. But foster parents are special people. It, it, it just is, you know, and especially knowing that kids don't end up there for any happy reasons. You know, it's not like parents are saying, well, I hit the lottery. I'm putting my kids in foster care. I'm out of here. You know, like. It's it's never anything good that gets a kid mm -hmm. into foster care. And that having the ability to to have empathy for those people and to be able to treat their children like they're your own, even when their parents are being a pain in the ass and probably did something that deserved their kids being taken away sooner rather than when they did get taken away, it does really take special people to to do that and to be able to keep doing it. So we have some friends that are fostering right now. And as someone who also was doing no babies are coming and we got about three weeks into foster training, you know, did the background checks, did the fingerprints, did all that, got pregnant after almost four years of trying the foster care. The woman who was arranging it said that it's a surprisingly common situation Anyway, I'm wondering how we can be supportive of folks who are doing foster care, because I imagine that the experience of becoming a parent to kids who are 
not ones that you spent presumably nine months expecting and who a lot of times aren't newborns and who hopefully are going to be reunited with their families and are not going to stay in your home, you know, how we can support those families as well, because it's, it's a very different way to become a family. Yeah, no, it, it, it really is. Uh, it's, you basically get a call, Hey, we have kids. Can you take them? And within an hour they're in your home. Um, and typically you're lucky if you get a trash bag full of clothes that comes with them more than likely you won't get that. Um, and so a lot of communities have a foster closet, what they call a foster closet typically is a, just a place where they collect items that foster families can go and shop. You know, it's kind of like, a, kind of like a thrift store. They shop for free or some, even some thrift stores will offer free clothes to, to foster parents. So just supporting supporting organizations that have those avenues to get items last minute, you know, on a moment's notice to get clothes. And, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of these kids are, are young. They might still be on formula and that's a huge expense. I don't know about other areas, but in Florida, you do get a stipend. If you're taking care of those kids, you don't spend on anything except for those kids, but that stipend doesn't come until after you've had them for a month. So you're, you're taking on costs right off the bat. So just having that, things in place when a, when a kid comes into care that you can immediately get the things that those kids need is what is a huge thing that that for me that was the, that was the most difficult part of being a foster parent is just not having having the stuff for those kids when they first come into your care all right so we like took a deeper pivot there than i anticipated so your kids are you said 12 10 7 and 6 was that right or 6 yes. and 5 yes Okay. Arlene's kids are a bit older than mine, but my kids are seven and almost six. So we're we're right there in the young children trench is mm -hmm. with you. What parenting advice can you give us? And I mean, obviously you deal with a lot of kids if you're, you know, going from summer camp to fostering kids to having kids to running a 4-H program. Presumably you like children or you would have noped out by this point. <laughs> Right. <laughs> the, the trend indicates that he does enjoy being yeah. around children. Yeah, yeah. I do. <laughs> I guess the, the first thing that came to my mind was understanding that their childhood is not the same as our childhood. When I was growing up, I could just get on my bike and go ride wherever I wanted at 10, 12 years old. And my parents weren't even home. I was a latchkey kid, you know, and just, you know, it, I had all kinds of free time. I could just do whatever kids today don't have that. Not only are they, you know, you got to be here, you got to be there, you got to be watched wherever you go, but they don't have all that extra time. They are, they are really busy. Everything that they, the kids that we have them doing now, all the different programs are in the, the school. It feels like the school days are longer. It's just making sure you realize that you can't compare our childhood with their childhood. You got to, you, you're comparing apples and oranges and just take the time to really take and listen to them find a way to communicate because they don't also not going to necessarily communicate the same way we do the things that we had to communicate with back then you know is a lot of verbal communication a lot of in-person communication you know i didn't have internet till 
I was halfway through my senior year of high school. There was no texting and no emails. It was all in person. And now the kids now, they're, they're not in person. They're not used to making eye contact. So you really have to think about from their perspective that it's, it's a whole different world. And if we expect them to be like us, they're going to fail. We need to, it's okay to set expectations, but we need to realize where they're coming from and at least meet them in the middle. That's good to remember because I know even, you know, during the COVID years where, where I live, our kids were online school for months on end and we expected them to only communicate online with their teachers, with their fellow classmates. And then to now try and say, oh, well, you guys never talk to each other. Well, we, they're a product of the way they were raised. And for a year, for a couple of years there, they were raised where this was the only way they were allowed to communicate with each other. So it shouldn't be a surprise that they're using the technology that we expected them to use and that we all have available too. I mean, I spend more time, you know, texting and sending memes with my with my friends than I did when I was in high school because I didn't have a phone back then. But yeah, we're we're all adapting to the way technology is now. So just thinking that it's a teenage problem is a kid problem is is not realistic. Yeah, yeah, and I, I get these. You know, we actually just had our county fair had their pageant about two weeks ago, and I was there listening and. One of my 4-H kids was on stage in the pageant, and she was asked the the question, what, what's one of the biggest issues facing your generation? And she said, it's everyone who thinks that we're not doing anything, that we're not trying, that we're, you know, that we're just lazy. You know, and, and a lot of kids really do feel that way. They really feel put down that that they're not good enough, and, and it's because we're comparing them to what we used to do, and, and it's just not, it's not, it's not the same thing. Yeah, that's a good point. What is your favorite thing about raising kids on the farm and in agriculture? Oh, my favorite thing is now that my kids are old enough to help, it, it's awesome to be able to stand back some and guide them and watch them grow. I waited so long for that to be able to to just see them develop through through farms farm skills. I can teach them so many different things. Observation is one of the main things I teach the kids when we pull into, when we pull into the, into the property. And I, I, I look at them, I said, what are you looking at? Well, I don't know. Am I looking, looking at my phone? Why don't you look around? What do you see? You know, is, is the horse laying down is, you know, what, what are you looking at? You know, are you, are you, are you observing what, what potentially could be, there could be an issue. We've been gone. You know, you should be looking around and and that can really translate into other things in life. You're here, go off to college. You need to walk into a room and be able to assess it really quick. Or, you know, you never, you know, just, just things like that. And I try to teach them the farm things, but then reconnect them with other parts of life. You know, all right, I'm teaching this on the farm, but you can really use this in other ways. And I think that's my favorite thing is just, just the teaching. Um, it's been really cool. And, and having an extra set of hands, it's really awesome that I get to, I, I went away for three days this week to that conference and, I didn't have to worry that things were getting done because my kids were there to, to pick up the pieces. So what's the the biggest challenge? Hmm. So that's one. I don't know what the biggest challenge. I guess the biggest challenge is just having enough time, just making sure you have time, being intentional with your time to, to really, you know, you only have so much time. And, and I know everybody says that you only have your kids for such a short time, but the older they get, the more you realize it. 
you know, my son's 12. Yeah. He's already two thirds of the way before he, he moves off as an adult and just feel like we just got started. So just taking the time to be intentional, to make sure the kids know that, that you love them, that you appreciate them, that you're there to support them, I think is, is the biggest challenge because there's just not enough time to really do it. And like you said, that all those other things start to to pull them in other directions, which is great because if they're involved in things, that means they're interested. But then, yeah, our, our sliver of time just gets smaller and smaller and turns into yeah. the chauffeur job. <laughs> right. That's why, that's why that talking in the car advice that people always use is, is really important, right? We have to capitalize yeah. on those, those car drives because that's what we've got. Yes. So, David, I feel like you're particularly well-suited to this next question. We ask all of our guests, if you were going to dominate a category at the county fair, what would it be? And you can make up a category if you want, you know, if you have like some dream for each category that you really think ought to be a thing. Or So I think if I were to dominate a category, I kind of have two answers. So my fun answer is the pie eating contest because you just can't go wrong with a pie eating contest. And you Now know, just... quantity or speed? <laughs> See, and that's the thing. Like, I want to, I, I want to make sure I can at least taste the pies while I'm eating them. So, <laughs> I guess I go for quantity so we can, <laughs> yeah, enjoy those bites. But I also would love to dominate in public speaking. So, I, when I teach my 4-H kids, I'm very open and, and discuss not only how to public, how to speak in public, but the feelings that I get when I speak in public, because by nature, I'm a wallflower. I'm shy. I don't want to be in the limelight, but I also do it because I know if I don't, who's going to do it. So I've kind of just pushed myself to be that person and and to step up when I'm called, but I get so nervous the 30 minutes leading up to it. Anytime I have to talk, even now on the podcast, before I got on here, I'm like pacing, preparing myself, but then getting into the moment and it just comes out and it's awesome. And that's why I try to teach my kids that as long as you're prepared, as long as you know who you are and what you care about, that, that it's just going to, it's just going to fall into place. And so if I could get away with that, get rid of that nervousness, that would be awesome. Cause it's so stupid that I have it. Cause <laughs> I don't need it. <laughs> A little bit of that is the adrenaline too, right? Of like, it's kind of, yeah, nerves, excitement, but it's one of those things that, uh, yeah, I, especially in front of a room of people, I don't love public speaking, but when it goes well, there's nothing that really matches that feeling, right? Of, of thinking yeah. that that worked, you know, like I connected and what I said, actually, you know, the things that I practiced, maybe that's what leads us to do all the preparation too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Most of us who uh, do a lot of prep before then, then you feel like, oh, it's all worth it. That's what I yes. was waiting for. <laughs> so we will go ahead and move into our cussing and discussing segment. So our listeners know that they can send in theirs on our speak pipe or email them to us and we'll either play your voice memo or read it out for you. Kitty, what's your cussing and or discussing for this week? I'm trying to to come up with a, a positive way to put this. I really dislike the feeling it brings about in myself to see other parents competing with each other through their children. My kids are in a athletic class, shall we say, and some of the parents are very competitive with each other 
And it's all through, you know, whose child is the most naturally talented and whose child practices the hardest. And I mean, we're talking and, little kids. And they're seven and five. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, these kids yeah, are like three. They're, oh, they're gosh, not high yeah. school athletes. They're not, yeah. they're not destined yeah. for the Olympics, probably, you know, they're. And there's nothing they could really, yeah. And there's nothing they could really have done to prepare for this activity. Yeah. It is just genuinely what their physical expression of their bodies is. So it's not like they can. uh, And then, A, I find myself getting really judgy of these people because how do you have nothing better to do? But also, then I'm looking at my kids who, God love them, are very enthusiastic and very much not physically suited. To this pursuit but they're trying they're having fun one of them at least is having fun the other one is learning about the, <laughs> the other one is there yeah. showing up for things you committed to but That's i find some too. part of myself is like well why can't my kid be naturally talented you know and just because my kid is twice the size of this child who is their same age and not from a coordinated family and also i don't give a rat's patoot about this athletic event so now why am i all like because i'm you know and then i feel like i'm judging myself as a parent because my kids face plant a lot and i find it really funny like they're not getting hurt (laughs) they're fine they're laughing about it but the other moms are like oh those poor children they'll never be olympic athletes they're like now you're right. Like they're not going to be Olympic athletes. That's yeah. fine. And chan- chances are no one in this facility is. So yeah. yeah, we don't need to worry about it. And just the fact that I am obviously getting so sucked into this that it was 24 hours ago that I was watching this happen again, and I'm still just like feeling it. Just I, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, get a life besides your children's activities, unless you're a 4-H agent. <laughs> And then you should definitely be more involved. Probably we should all be volunteering for shit like 4-H instead of taking our kids to things they're not suited to. They can have a variety of interests. And if they're having fun, then that's good, too. One of them's having fun. Yeah. (laughs) You're driving there anyway. The other one's going to have to do it. Yeah. Uh, David, what do you have to cuss and discuss today? Yeah, the only thing I could come up with is that it's against myself that I need to stop taking on so much in my program. I am I'm one that's going to take on all the new opportunities instead of sharing the opportunities. So I really need to take the time to find some new volunteers who want to try some of these opportunities with me and share some of this awesomeness because it you know, I'm kind of being greedy at the same time that I'm not sharing it. And it's one of my weaknesses is not being, I'm not a good neighbor. I'm not good at sharing. I will give, but I won't take. And so I really need to work on that. And I, I think it's one of my, I don't usually do New Year's resolutions, but I think that's one of mine this year is is to is to work on that, to, to be good at sharing. The other one is to get back into reading because I haven't done that since I've had kids. So I'll try that too. <laughs> if you shared some of those responsibilities, you'd probably have more time to read. Uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Otherwise, the, the it's all about stuff. audiobooks. Yes, that's that's what I actually started doing is audio because there's so much driving. So I, I started the audiobooks. Arlene, what do you have to cuss and discuss today? 
So just a note, my kids just got back from school. So if you hear someone smashing into this room, that is why. <laughs> you won't see them, listeners, but you will probably hear them. So I think my cussing and discussing, I didn't have one prepared. But after listening to David talk, I'm going to share his, that expectation that we have that our kids should have the childhood or the youth or the sensibilities that we had or that our pa parents had or any of those things. Every generation of kids is growing up in a different time and it's going to have different skills and it's going to have different senses of self and senses of what's important to them. And that's okay. And every generation has, you know, complained about the one before. I don't remember, you know, which Roman philosopher, you know, there's that quote shared from like hundreds of years ago where they're talking about the lazy youth of today. It's just a universal sentiment. Oh, there's one of my people. You guys can say hi. <laughs> But yeah, you know, the radio didn't ruin the children a hundred years ago or whatever, and the internet didn't destroy our youth, and our kids are going to have skills that we don't have, and that is fantastic, and that's going to serve them well into the future. So let's just love all the kids in all their stages. And, you know, if there are gaps that we feel like they have, then that's our job as parents to help, you know, bolster those and use programs like 4-H or FFA or whatever you, you know, whatever programs they're into, use those things to try and try and encourage them and grow skills that we think are going to be important, but, but also not, not ignore the skills that they're, they're picking up on from the life that they're living. We were laughing the other day about the idea of, you know, what parents said when the printing press was invented, were they, you know, <laughs> yeah, those up, books are ruining their minds. copying their manuscripts anymore, <laughs> yeah. you know. Right. Yeah, yeah. That was <sighs> probably cars. Yeah, the cars and the, yeah, the radio, all the things that made the next generation lazier than the one before, but <laughs> it's a different world and that's all right. So, David, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. If people want to connect with you on social media, where should they track you down? Well, you can easily find me. I have a website. It's farmeradvocate.com. Facebook is also Farmer Advocate. And then I'm also on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube as Farmer underscore Advocate. Super. You're in all the places advocating. Right. Thank you so much for talking <laughs> to us today. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, having for me. coming on, David. Thank you for joining us on Barnyard Language. If you enjoy this show, we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com backslash barnyardlanguage to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making this show. Please rate and review the podcast and follow the show so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter, we are Barnyard Pod. If you want to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group. We are always in search of guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, please get in touch.